0: What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Network by Intercom. Excited to be bringing you this interview with Buddy Clark at Haynes & Boone. But before we do that, I need to do some quick work, please. If you're not subscribed to the 360 Digital Closing Bell or the Energy 360 Network Podcast, please, I suggest you do that right now. It's iTunes, Spotify, YouTube are the best place for both energy market finance stuff and the 360 closing bill, and then also energy thought leadership on the Energy 360 Network by Intercom. And you can also find this podcast with Buddy on iTunes and Spotify as well. This was just an awesome interview, getting to sit down with Buddy Clark, who is a partner over at Haynes & Boone and the co-chair of the Energy Practice Group. He wrote a book that, that, that took him five years to write. It's called Oil Capital, and it really focuses on the history of oil capital from all the way early in the 1900s all the way through today and really what we focused on was was a lot of the history stuff one of the big things he talks about in his book is proration and we talked about the comparisons between when proration was in effect in the 70s and now we took a huge long look at history it was an awesome interview and me and Stuart loved chatting with him so I'm just not even going to waste your time let's turn it over to Stuart and get this thing kicked off
1: um, hey guys, we're here sitting uh, with uh, Buddy Clark. He is a partner with Haynes and & Boone and has been a uh, longtime uh, attorney in the oil and gas space. Buddy, how are you doing today?
2: Doing great, Stu. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. We also got Michael uh, Tanner. He's our uh, analyst and uh, host. How are you doing today, Michael?
0: I'm doing good. Just excited. This is going to be a, a nice history lesson from you. I always enjoy that. So I'm, I'm just excited to listen to this. This is an awesome book um, that Buddy's written. I'm excited to dive into it.
1: You know, you know, Buddy, and thank you for taking the time. This book, uh, Oil Capital, uh, The History of American Oil, Wildcatters, and Independent and Their Bankers, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, as you can tell, I uh, <laughs> wrote all over it. And uh, as we were just talking a minute ago, you said you'd taken five years to write this and it started out just as a speech. Could you just tell us a little bit about that?
2: Uh, sure, yeah, as I was saying, we, um, in Houston, there's an energy group in the Houston Bar Association. They have monthly meetings. And uh, my partner as the president at the time asked me to speak, so I, I agreed to to speak for 30 minutes. and the topic I selected was something I've been working on my whole career, which has been energy finance. Um, and I was aware, so I started in 1982. I was aware when I started in 82, in fact I remember a banker Ralph fight at allied bank in Texas saying, "All oh, right, this is a new structure. It's really cr- cool. Here's how it works. You know, you, you got, you got a, this amount of credit that we can loan to borrowers. It can go up and down depending on the value of their assets and it has a borrowing base and it's oh what do I know? Because I had just started. I didn't know that there was a, a pre-existing uh, history. But by the time, and I guess what would that have been, 2014 or so, when, when Don Jackson asked me to do the speech, uh, I was aware that it, that it had been recently reintroduced when I was started. And I thought, well, that would be interesting to figure out where it came from. Uh, you know, who was the first banker to come up with the idea of using a borrowing-based, reserve-based loan? And, and where did it come from? And, and that's, so that's what my speech was about. But as I started to get into the research, uh, learning about the history of capital to the oil and gas industry, it just kept mushrooming. I mean, there's, there's so much information out there. And it's in, in, if you're a history buff like I am, it's really fascinating to keep on un- peeling the onion and learning more and more about the industry. And I uh, introduced the book uh, in the discussion I had with Joe Bridges. His quote, which sets the tone for the whole bank, uh, the whole book is that the oil and gas industry is always out of money. It just inhales capital. And, and that literally, if you if you go back in history and you look at it, that's been true from day one. So uh, it was a facet. It was really fun to do the research. Um, you know, it was, it was not my full-time job. So I'd come home at night and uh, I get just tons of information available on the internet and then our, our librarian would find various old papers that bankers had written in the 50s and 60s or uh, legal articles that had been written and just continue to do the research over time and it just kind of turned out as a big history lesson, not just on the uh, barring base RBL, but on the whole industry as a, as a whole.
1: You know, some of the uh, early things that I also love the way that you took the royalties uh, and how the difference between the uh, United States and uh, authoritarian uh, dictatorships, that's one of the reasons the Wildcatters did so well, is because of the way that the structure was done. I thought you articulated that very well early on. You started on how we made money. I was trying to identify the three... um
2: three pillars of oil and gas and capital and how they were married together. Sometimes a happy marriage, sometimes a not so happy marriage, but one of the principal ingredients for the development of the oil and gas industry in the United States critically was the fact that minerals are owned privately for the most part. I mean, there's certainly federal lands, there are state lands are Indian lands, but by and large, the, the industry got its start taking oil and gas leases from private mineral owners. And, uh, that, Regiment actually existed in a number of other countries up until World War One and World War One was the first mechanized uh, battle world battle and I think the the quote from one of the French uh, Commanders was the the victory of the, the Allied victory floated on a sea of oil because it was the oil that enabled the the Allies to overcome uh, the their enemies and A number of countries at that point, prior to that point, didn't realize the the uh, national interest and the security interest uh, associated with owning minerals. And once they realized it, they basically said, well, game's over. We're now we're now taking over all minerals. And So uh, Australia started it, I think, was one of the first countries to really sort of nationalize oil. Uh, Mexico famously did it in the 30s. But but England, uh, uh, also in Russia as well. A number of places where you did have prior to that, up to that time, private ownership of minerals, it was no longer the case. And in the United States, it had been such a, a large development of the independent producers that politically, I don't think it, it would have ever gotten very far, but so private ownership of minerals is, is one of the key ingredients. The other one is access to capital and certainly other you know england has a number of great banks so they have access to capital but u.s had private ownership of minerals and access to capital and the third leg uh, being a lawyer in my perspective is the legal regimen regimen that we have in the united states that enables people to enter into contracts that are enforceable and that can be uh can can be counted on as a as a reason to make an investment so the example on that one is, um, and I think it's called Galatia, uh, near Poland, they had private ownership of minerals because the there was a change in government and they said all the peasants, you now own your, your lands, which was great, but the peasants couldn't identify what land they owned because they didn't have this set of laws that we have in the United States of private ownership. They had no way to record what they owned, So entrepreneurs, uh, capitalists, were not interested in investing in something that they couldn't figure out what they were investing in. So we had three things, the private ownership of minerals, the uh, access to capital, and the kind of just a uh, legal regimen that, that gave certainty to investments. Those three elements put together really in in my, in my the book, the theme of my book is that's really what led to the growth of the oil and gas industry where you have over 4,000 independent producers in the United States. and. And the rest of the world you have a handful of national oil companies
1: and uh you know as as that is part of the beginning of it i also like the way you broke out the states louisiana california texas and then the birth of the texas railroad commission in rule 37 uh, the distance of drilling because that really impacted the reserves in, in those kind of things so Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the Texas railroad uh, history and what your thoughts on the history on that was as it uh, came through Uh,
2: but first what you mentioned about the uh, different ownership or or the different states or private ownership of minerals is fairly consistently applied across the states where there's oil and gas Uh, I, I found that to be kind of fascinating because really the United States legal Regime is basically an amalgamation of English law, French law and Spanish law. And actually in French and Spanish colonies, you had more oil and gas than than the English colonies. Uh, But most of the jurisprudence created across the United States is really from the English common law for reasons of the way the Westward expansion occurred. But uh, the interesting thing is so France, England and Spain all kept the minerals to the, uh, to, the, to the king, to the royals, uh, originally. So you, I don't want to get too deep in the history, but I mean, you can go back to the 1400s or so 1300s, the Spanish declarations. England retained the rights to gold, silver, and other minerals located thereby, but they didn't identify oil as a mineral, uh, certainly not back in the days of Henry VIII. Spain did, uh, and some of the Spanish grants specifically mentioned retaining the rights to bitumen. Or or heavy tar, uh, and then in France, when Napoleon came in, they kind of changed the whole uh, regimen of, of ownership with the with the revolution, and the state became the owner of of minerals. So uh, each one of those developments is really an interesting story unto itself. But the one I'll, I'll just tell a quick story about Texas because it's it's a fascinating way that we ended up in having private ownership in Texas when, in fact. Our laws, although when Texas was declared a republic, they adopted English common law as the basic law of the land, but they retained Spanish, Spanish property ownership law. And as I said, the, in Spain, the king owned all the minerals. And so that was the case when, when Texas became a republic, the state owned all the minerals. Uh, and so there were uh, patents or land grants that were issued subsequent to the republic and then subsequent to becoming a state where uh, the question was whether or not the minerals had been granted. Back then, again, oil and gas was not really a, a highly valued mineral, but, but salt was. And so during the Civil War, uh, there's a huge salt lake down in South Texas. Uh, and it was granted, I mean, the, the property was originally granted by the Spanish government to an individual. He sold it to uh, some Anglo when, when Spain's, well, Spain, then Mexico, then Texas, the Republic, then Texas State, those land titles were, were continued through the process. And the question became who owned the salt on that? Did the, did the landowner own the salt or did the state? Uh, and there was a lawsuit brought and because it was the uh, exigencies of, of the Civil War, the, the courts determined that the state owned the salt because they needed that to, to uh, prosecute and fight the war. So after the war was over, the lawyer that lost the lawsuit on behalf of the landowner became a legislator. And he decided he would write an amendment to one of the Texas constitutions to provide that the, uh, the salt under this lake would be owned by the landowner. And so that amendment was going to be passed. And, and this is the, I think, just a fascinating historical footnote that amendment was passed, it was written into the Constitution, it was sent over to the printers, and somehow, a a court decision reports this, somehow the printer got it wrong, and they didn't say that it was just the land of that, where that salt lake was, they said all lands in Texas, the landowners own the minerals. It was a mistake, Uh, and and the mistake wasn't really discovered until, I'm going to get my dates wrong now, it's been years as I did the research, but I think 1887, there was another constitutional uh, amendment or a constitutional uh, convention held, and they tried to rewrite it. So they tried to recorrect it. But in the interim period of time, a number of, uh, I don't know how many 1000s or 100s, of 1000s of acres had been granted away. And so mineral ownership was clearly held by those landowners. And the state retained the rights to minerals to the extent the lands were declared to be mineral properties. And that really was never recognized. The state was not aggressive enough in protecting their own mineral rights. And so it really was only out in West Texas where nobody was homesteading that the state continued to own their, the mineral rights. And those those lands in, in the Permian Basin, which become very you know, famously wealthy or famously valuable, those lands are state-owned lands that were dedicated to the Permanent University Fund. And that's why UT and A&M uh, have such great endowments to this date. And it, it all can kind of go back to that original Scrivener's error at the as a publisher. So it's, it's that kind of interesting history about the oil and gas industry that uh, I think really breathes a lot of life into it. Um, your question is really too about cool. the, about the Sorry. Railroad Commission. It's sort of a similar, it's sort of a similar deal. I mean, if you really want to get into the history of it, it was uh, Governor Hogg was an Attorney General, and his he was a populist uh, in the late eighteen hundreds, running against uh, railroads, you know, the big railroad barons. And, and he brought some lawsuits that he was going to shut them down because the farmers couldn't get their, uh, production to market, uh, at fair, fair prices. And so Hogg ran for governor on the, cam- on the campaign that he would regulate the railroad railroads and was elected governor. And it was about this time Spindletop was first discovered in early 1900s. Uh, and by uh, 1960, 1970, the, the majors, uh, Texaco or Magnolia Oil Company, the the oil companies from outside of the state of Texas were coming in, and the local power uh, brokers didn't like money from New York. Uh, that has not changed over 100 years. But they didn't like the money from New York, so they wrote certain le- certain provisions of the legislation that said you couldn't be a vertically integrated oil and gas company, owning pipelines, production, and marketing. And uh, in order to regulate that, to regulate the pipelines, they needed some entity that that had the ability to control prices, tariffs, and rates. And the only thing that existed in Texas at that time was the Railroad Commission was regulating tariffs for railroads. So they had no real expertise. I mean, nobody did back then, really, from, from that perspective. But they just charged the Railroad Commission with another duty. You you, you, know, you handle transportation, handle transportation under pipelines. And so the Railroad Commission gets into regulating the oil and gas industry. Uh, and that that wasn't very controversial in and of itself. But what became controversial was the fact that this was a real boom and bust time for the oil and gas industry. and and basically, Texas was the oil and gas industry, but for all intents and purposes, Spindletop um, fields up in the Panhandle. Uh, there were fields being discovered left and right. When they were discovered, you'd have this huge flush of production. Prices would collapse, and uh, everybody would go bankrupt. And then the then the prices would come back up because the people stopped producing. That's another uh, theme that continues to repeat itself. Uh, and the the state again power brokers if you will and the state said we're wasting the state's natural resources by this boom and bust we're we're overproducing and people are utilizing oil for things that's not best suited for and we should conserve state's natural resources so how do we do that uh because what they were fighting against and I, I don't think you mentioned this but uh the law the, the, the early english common law was the rule of capture with respect to wild animals so if a wild animal crossed your neighbor's fence into your your property and you captured that animal some way or another that you owned it. it even if the neighbor uh you know saw it first but if it flew over your fence line and you shot that bird down it was yours so that's a rule of capture well early on in the and gas industry uh the producers didn't really understand it very well and certainly much less the judiciary so the judges were presented with arguments that oil was really like a river flowing underground. And so if you captured it, you owned it, but if you didn't capture it, the river kept going and and it was now under the neighbor's property. And so that incentivized everybody to be actively uh, exploring for and producing as quickly as possible any production they found. Well, that was wasteful. And uh, to stop waste, you need to have some sort of regulations and another, uh, everything continually repeats itself in here. Uh, The oil industry was not really enamored with regulation. The independent producers, the only way they made money was to produce as fast as possible, pay back their investors, and and plow money back into the next uh, boom town that that came up. So the independents fought the railroad commission uh, in the courts. Uh, They basically had insurrection in the fields. And it wasn't until the East Texas field was discovered that it was so much oil, even the independents realized that there was there were no controls and constraints to regulate production and it, it was causing problems among the independent producers. And they, they actually petitioned the governor who was one of the founders of Exxon Oil, but they petitioned him to bring, uh, the national Guard in to impose the regulations that the rail commission had issued to limit the amount of production from each well. And so, uh, the railroad commission fought this battle for, maybe a good 10 years. And it wasn't until the 19 middle 1930s uh, that the independents finally came around to the the major's way of thinking they need to regulate production. And that was really in large part because the federal government was threatening to come in, to step in. Uh, there were even some, some thoughts that they ought to nationalize oil and make uh, oil companies like utilities and regulate them that way. And that nothing puts the fear of God in, in an independent producer more than the thought that the federal government's going to tell them how to run their business. So, so that brought everybody to the table. And, uh, and, and we had proration from the 1930s up to the 1970s. And as you know, there's been some discussion or was a month or two ago at a hearing at, with the Railroad commission, trying to reimpose proration because again, there's too much oil on the market that didn't go anywhere uh, currently because of a number of reasons. One, Uh, Texas just doesn't control that much of the world's production, less than five percent. And two, uh, the market is much more, was much quicker acting than any uh, state regulatory agency could be. So the whole idea of of the Railroad Commission trying to reimpose proration, I'm sure, was causing all the regulators to pull their, their hair out, to think they'd have to go back in and measure how much each field was contributing to worldwide demand and then ratchet it down. It was just I think it was, it was an idea uh, to try to identify and highlight the problems that the in- industry is facing. I don't know if everybody really gave it a whole lot of serious thought that was actually going to be implemented.
0: I think, yeah, I, I mean, there's just so much information. And I think the history of this stuff is fascinating, but kind of getting back to, and, I, and I'm glad we've kind of brought it up to the 70s here because, you know, the title of your book is Oil Capital. And one of the biggest things that when I was going through, I noticed was the evolution of technology as you got into this point that, hel- that helped the capital lending process sort of get to where it is and how that has, ex- you know, really helped accelerate. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, the technology is, just, I mean, it's, I think, I'm I'm totally biased, so, (laughs) and I don't know much about other industries, but I think the oil and gas industry is the most high-tech industry out there. I think Exxon had one of the first supercomputers before any other company ever did. So uh, the main thing that happened in in the seventies really was more production coming in from the Middle East. Uh, But that was the beginning, if you recall, um, for horizontal well production, and they were improving on their, their uh, seismic activity. So I think 3D was coming in around maybe in the 80s. And all that just gave the oil producers greater certainty and reduced the amount of dry holes they were drilling. So the more production they could get and bring on the market, then obviously uh, if it exceeded the amount of demand, it could cause prices to drop. So US was increasing its production during the '70s and all the while there's a whole lot of other history world history going on in the Middle East uh, and a part of that world history of the upset in the Middle East was the that, that formation of, of OPEC and then the use of OPEC or at least the Middle East producers using oil as a, uh, a tool of, of war or to get some type of leverage over a lot of the countries that were supporting Israel and so the the technology enabled the U.S. producers to be able to increase their production, the first couple of times that OPEC tried to flex their muscles and and control market prices, U.S. producers were able to to rise up and meet the demand, along with uh, Venezuela and some other countries. But uh, I think by the third time OPEC issued an embargo, uh, the U.S. wells were pretty much tapped out. They were at full production, and that's why we no longer had proration because the wells were producing the full amount they could, and it still wasn't uh, more than, than the market needed. So you had a lot of technology come about in the, in the 70s and 80s that went, that went along uh, the same time as the world events were going on.
1: But, you know, uh, with with the capital, buddy, you did say in your book at one time, uh, the original loans in capital were 20 pages. Technology allowed it to go to 120 pages.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's not so much the technology that I think the oil and gas industry would be proud of. That's that's the technology that the lawyers uh, generated. Uh, And that really occurred... Well, to a degree, you're right. I mean, the the whole RBL loan and and, I mean, if you want to go back historically, it was just a a mortgage and a promissory note. And that's how these loans were documented. And it was a term loan. And and once the loan was paid back, the mortgage was canceled. Uh, With the RBL, the reserve based loan, it was revolver and borrowers could borrow money, pay it back and borrow it back down. And so it wasn't a situation where the borrower went to the bank and it was a table funded loan at least in theory, that they walked out the door with a briefcase full of cash. Here you had this line of credit going up and down. And so the banks wanted to impose greater controls or uh, tripwires, call it, on on the amount of money that was being lent out to borrowers. And so that added a number of different covenants to credit agreements that previously didn't exist because the bank could care less what the borrower did with his cash on a term-based loan because they were borrowing just against this existing production. They weren't they weren't lending. They weren't lending against what the producer could do in the future. With an RBL, with a revolver, you're you're basically uh, funding a, an ongoing business, and so you want to make sure that business is run correctly. And that that led to generation of, of more paper. So when I started in, in early 1980s, uh, you we first had these IBM's electric typewriters that were electric, and they ran off of mag cards. And so you could uh, instead of having the, port, the secretaries have to type through seven pages of carbon. Copied paper, uh, you know, they could run it off their IBM Selectric, and, and that was just you know a marvel of modern technician tech technology. But what really, uh, as a side story, it really kind of caused oil and gas loan documentation and I guess documentation worldwide to explode was uh, access that we had given to us through the internet of filings at the SEC. So any material documents that you enter into. Uh, had to be filed with the Security Exchange Commission. And I forget the date, but the SEC started EDGAR, which was the electronic document uh, system that anybody, you wouldn't have to ha- call somebody in Washington, D.C. to walk across the street to the SEC's office to, to get a hard copy of a credit agreement. And so these credit agreements became so much more accessible to everybody that even though, uh, say, may, maybe a large uh, independent Was borrowing money on a secured basis, and they filed it because they're a public company. Well, even the smallest independent who were private, they had access to these credit agreements. They said, "Well, you know, so and so is getting these terms. I want these terms too." And that that uh, led to this explosion of the RBLs and sort of a dilution, if you will, of the controls that certain banks had because everybody wanted to have the same credit agreement that the biggest borrower had, whether or not they were qualified to, to have that much freedom under their credit agreements. So that also, you know, on the, the technology on the legal side, that was probably more of what happened. And then now with the internet, you know, you, once you've signed a, a credit agreement, it's, it's, uh, it's out there. There's nothing, there's nothing on the internet that's uh, protected, right? You, yeah, can, get, you that, can get your hands on just about everything.
1: That's right. Uh, one of the other things I thought was funny about Fred Moses in the book in 1986, uh you know we had that downturn in 86 and fred moses said this happened so damn quickly in 90 days we expected a dip but none of us would be such a precipitous dip um buddy what do you think about the 80s destruction and do you think it's going to pertain to now uh between the two
2: well it's it's definitely Uh, a precipitous drop we've seen this time. And I don't know anyone that was expecting it. Of course, this is different because it's combined with a demand drop associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. But, uh, the eighties, very similar to what's happening now, very similar to what happened in Thanksgiving of 2014. OPEC said, we're tired of, of protecting the market price at, at our expense while the independent producers or other countries are making, uh, making hay while we restrict our production. So in 86, that's when OPEC finally said, we're gonna stop trying to sup- prop up the price of oil and we're just gonna gain our market share back. Uh, and when they did that, they flooded the market, the prices collapsed, I forget what it was, maybe $9 a barrel that the price went down to. And it uh, was devastating, not just for the independent producers in the United States, but it was really devastating for their energy lenders, much more so than we're gonna see this time around. But uh, in the book, I write about it, the great stories of, of the banks and how you, know, you, you think the producers were caught off guard and they had to scramble and they definitely suffered much more than the banks did. But in Texas, we had uh, our 10 largest banks in Texas, nine of them failed or were acquired or were taken over by the FDIC. And the only reason why Frostbank, the other one that did, did not go under, uh, was because it was it was scaling back. It had some oil and gas loan exposure, but it was it was sort of uh, putting lipstick on on the bank in order to make it more attractive to be taken over by First City. First city national bank of, of Houston. And so a lot of the, the energy banks in the early 80s got burned, especially on the rig loans and oil field services loans, not so much on the on the EMP production loans. But they got burned so bad they needed to find some other place to invest their money. And so they jumped over into real estate. And this is when the Texas real estate market totally collapsed because of a number of reasons, not the least of which state, uh, I mean, the savings and loan industry was restrictions on their ability to make commercial loans were relaxed just about the same time. So one of those quote perfect storm situations. And so all the uh, major energy banks in Texas, took a bath on energy for sure, but they really were hammered on real estate and they were not large enough to be bailed out by the federal government. And so uh, they were taken over. And, and to me, if, if there is a, if there's uh, you know a, a, a lasting impression on the state of Texas for the 1980s, it's not so much to me, the producers. I mean, the producers came back uh, with a vengeance over time but they definitely came back but we lost in texas what we lost was this uh ownership of the franchise of making energy loans and those loans were then transferred to the new york banks uh banks in california banks in chicago and and now uh banks in north carolina where i don't know if you've checked your, your records lately but there is zero production coming out of the state of north carolina so to me the industry really benefits from a deep knowledge on all levels, not just the producers, but the bankers and the lawyers and the accountants. It's, it's a very unique industry. You don't just replicate it by making loans to a washing, a washing machine manufacturers, different business. And I think Texas lost a, an incredible amount of political clout. Not that we don't have plenty of it still around, but we lost a lot of that when we lost control over the, the local energy banking. To me, that's, That's one of the biggest kind of call it a scar from the 1980s.
1: Um, That's a pretty big scar when you take a look at uh, uh, the effects that uh, the boomtown had and uh, everything else uh, out of that. So, well, uh, buddy, thank you very much. Uh, This has just been a real exciting time. I mean, this book, I'll tell you what, anybody that has not read the book, Needs to because this uh, conversation is only part of it, and I really appreciate your five years that you put into it because it, it was worth it. Uh, Michael, do you have any last thoughts before we?
0: Yeah, I think I'm I mean, first off that this book is 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 I'm kind of like you. I do really enjoy the history, so I, I appreciate ate the lesson, and you know, kind of I think you know really the only the only thing that that, that I think to, to kind of circle it around and bring it back before we let you go is so obviously in the 70s there were proration. And there was probation that was, you know, a month ago that the Railroad Commission was here. Did you have, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on it? What, if, obviously, they didn't vote in favor, but what, what were your thoughts on that? And did you have a side you were leaning on it? And what, I guess, did history tell us about maybe what should, we should be doing now?
2: Well, uh, I think history tells us that we should be remembering history. Because that way we try not to repeat it so much, but uh, the whole idea of prorationing, I think, is uh, an idea that's long past its uh, effectiveness, especially if you limit it just to the state of Texas. And Texas was talking about combining with New Mexico and North Dakota and and trying to make more of an effort. But I think it was basically window dressing to try to uh, mollify OPEC, the Saudis, that the U.S. was not going to run rampant if they if they crank down their production again, and then. Uh, it, it really it, it didn't have the impact on the market that I think they were hoping it would have. But the market is just so dynamic. Maybe the the lesson from history is you just you can't assume anything. You can't expect that it's going to be different this time. That's one of the the quotes in the book that John Templeton said is the four uh, most expensive words in the English uh, of uh, investing are this time it's different because. Uh, everybody always thinks they're smarter. Thinks that if what has happened won't happen again. But uh, if you study history, you just you see these these cycles, and you see all this repetition. It's, it's it. That's what for me made the research that much more enjoyable. I'd, I'd be reading about something out of the 1930s and Go wait, wait a minute. This is this is what's going on right now. What the heck? we didn't learn, and, and I and I think ultimately we don't learn. Uh, Somebody had asked me if this is going to be the end of RBL loans and I I don't think so at all. I think it's a good structure but I do think that um, the lessons that are being painfully taught to bankers and producers today will be remembered only for so long as prices stay low and when they start to go back up history will tell us that uh, we'll forget those lessons and we'll become uh, much more aggressive and take on more debt and try to grow the business that much faster. So uh try to it, i would encourage people to to buy the book but, but if they buy it to read it and to uh and try to just kind of keep it in the back of their mind as they see prices going back up mm-hmm. don't forget that this is not the last time prices are going to gyrate
1: well you know buddy uh i just have really appreciated uh you know reading the book and learning from you and you being a uh, longtime uh, oil and gas attorney and being a partner at Haynes & Boone, and thank you for your leadership in the industry, and uh, thank you for taking the time today. So we just really appreciate it and look forward to future discussions. So thank you very okay. so much, buddy.
2: Thank you. Thank you for letting me uh, to talk to you guys today.